Jeff Jansen, our usual teaching pastor, is on vacation, and praise God he's coming back next week because um, this has been two ruined weeks of my life because I worried about the message. I thought, well, after the first week, I kind of get into my rhythm and everything, but Monday was, Monday was kind of messed up because was Monday really a holiday or wasn't it a holiday? So I ended up working about half a day, and then I thought, well, it's July 4th weekend. July 4th, I felt obligated to not work. So Wednesday, I hit it. Um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is day with the grandkids. And so I had a wonderful day yesterday, Saturday, working on a message all day long. And so I'm glad that Jeff's coming back this next week. It'll be great to have him back. Um, But we are doing a two-week series that I'm calling Life Skills. Last week, we talked about the life skill on work. If you haven't checked it out, go out to our YouTube channel. You can listen to that or watch it online. And we talked about how work is not, as Mark Twain was quoted, a necessary evil, something to be avoided. But as followers of Jesus, we can restore work and redeem work um, back into restoring its purpose, that we work for the glory of God. So whatever we do, Scripture says, we do it to give God glory. So it changes our perspective on work. That also we, we do it, we restore it by finding our calling that each one of us have different gifts and talents and abilities, and we want to find that sweet spot in our jobs, in our workplace, in our vocations, where we're really using what God has designed us to do and apply that to the workplace. Uh, We restore it by living on mission. We remember that wherever we are, we represent Christ. And being in the workplace, we're missionaries in there. It doesn't mean we're sharing the gospel with everybody every day where they see us coming and they run away, but it means that we represent Christ. We live lives that look like Jesus. And finally, we restore it by incorporating rest into our work, that we build in the rhythms of rest. A once a week, taking a day off, taking a Sabbath to restore ourselves, taking some vacations where you get away for a long time because we talked about the principle about we want to work from rest rather than resting from work. So you don't need to watch it. There's everything we talked about last week. You got the summary on that. But this week, um, we're going to talk about family. And as I spent some time researching family this week, I came across quite a few parenting trends that have come and gone that I thought I would share with you as we get started. Um, For example, there was some advice around the turn of the century that advised newborns to be well smeared in lard, olive oil, or fresh butter. So how many of you guys are practicing that these days? Has that kind of gone from favor? Danny, thank you. Um, Another word of advice, this came from a 1928 parenting manual. It said, you should kiss your baby no more than once a day because this manual advised that the best way to avoid raising a little tyrant was to never hug or kiss your children If you must, you can kiss them once before bed and shake their hand in the morning, okay? (laughs) Great advice has come and gone. Another one, a guy, this is a doctor, Dr. Lambert Ort in 1919. He recommended using red wine as a tonic (laughs) to placate restless children. He said, he said, this is his quote, I have used red wine as a tonic for weak children with amazing results. However, I instructed the parents not to let the children know that I was giving them wine, but I call it red tonic, okay? And then my favorite suggestion that, thank goodness, has gone away was in the 30s, 
in order to give your children, your baby, plenty of fresh air, there was something called a baby cage. Baby cages became popular because what could be better for your baby than to put it into a cage and hang it 10 stories up above ground, okay? So there you go. Um, so some of these trends obviously come and go. There's all kinds of ideas and, and suggestions about parenting that come and go. But today we're going to look at the Bible and just look at a few of the commands and principles about the family, about marriage, about raising children. And I'm just going to list out a few points because the more I dug into this topic, another thing that I realized was there is no way that I can talk about family and parenting and all this stuff in one week. This is going to be you know, so much information. So excuse me this morning as I just hit some high-level foundations, and perhaps we can have some more discussions about this in the future. So as we did last Sunday, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis, the foundations of everything, to see that not only was work created in pre-fall as a part of paradise, we worked in paradise, but also the family was created at the beginning of creation as a part of being in paradise. And so my first point, I'm going to make it really easy for you. I'm going to put point one so you'll know my four points that I'm doing. So point one is that God established marriage as a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman at the very beginning. Genesis 2.18, you can turn there if you want. I'll read it to you. Genesis 2.18 said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.21 through 25. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So as we saw last week, every, after every day of creation, when God was working, after every day, he looked at what he had made, and he said, this was good, this is good. But when he created man, he said, this is not good for man to be alone. Now, is it good for a man to be alone? Um, anyone ever been to a bachelor pad in college with a bunch of guys living there? Is that good? Is there anything good coming out of that? I remember when I was in college and um, living on my own, I suddenly found out that folding different, different parts of my laundry was a complete optional endeavor, okay? So if you would see it, if it was my shirt or pants, I would fold it. Underwear, socks, sheets, blankets, all that stuff. I never folded that stuff. You just kind of cram it in. That's maybe not, not good. I also learned that, did you know that you can survive on an entire week with a can of tuna fish and some macaroni and cheese? You just mix it all together, and you can live on that forever. Um, I had another friend of mine. He lived around, around the corner. His name was Gilberto, and he had a hobby of taxidermy, and this was in Texas. And uh, there was a lot of roadkill in Texas, you know, a lot of, a lot of farm roads and stuff, and so, because his hobby was taxidermy, he would go, as he's driving around, if he found something dead on the side of the road, he would take it home and keep it in his freezer. 
So you never, until he had a chance to kind of mess with it. So you never really knew exactly if he invited you over for dinner. It's like, what are we eating right here? So it's not good. Can we say an amen? It's not good for man to be alone. It's, it's a mess. So God created Eve, a wife for Adam. And then after Adam and Eve were created, God saw this and he said, for the first time, he said, this is very good. Very good. It was established by God at the beginning of creation, a relationship so close that it's referred to as the two becoming one flesh. As creator, God owns the definition of marriage. He is our creator. He defines what marriage looks like. One man, one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship. Okay? Anything outside of this is not part of God's plan for marriage. Now, we live in a culture that is pushing against this. And I just, I'm not going to get into this a whole lot, but our culture and society would like to tell us that, you know, same sex marriage is really okay. That's valid as long as they love each other and it's a valid option. But it's opposed to what the scriptures teach about God's definition of marriage. The definition of marriage from the very beginning is one man and one woman united together in a covenant relationship for life. God owns the definition of marriage. So point one, marriage from the very beginning, that God established that as something, he said it was very good. Point two, the family was established by God at the beginning as a part of living in paradise. So one of the first things that God said to man and woman, he said he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The family was a building block through which God's purposes for mankind were to be accomplished. It wasn't an individual. He didn't go to Adam and say, I want you to do this. He went to Adam and Eve, and he said, all right, I want you guys to multiply, and I want you to rule and reign over the entire earth. So the family was established by God at the very beginning as a part of being in paradise. Now, families are very important to God. You know, we live in, as a friend of mine said, a hyper-individualistic society. I just like to say hyper-individualistic society, that we don't think in terms of families and relationships and lineages as much as the Bible teaches about this. Um, how many of you guys are doing a Bible reading plan? Let's raise your hand. A lot of you. How many of you are doing the one where you read through the entire Bible? Just, just a confession, I'm doing like the, it's called the, what's it called, the 150? I, I was thinking, oh, F2, yeah, I, I always want to say the Ford F-150, so it's F-260 plan, where it goes over the highlights, it gives you the grand scheme of things, because honestly, when we get to the lineages, you know, where it talks about so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, do you really like dig into every word or do you kind of gloss over that, okay? Um, but, you know, God, God said, or scripture says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So those are in there for a reason. I think one of the things is it shows us that those lineages, family relationships are very important to God, that there's some kind of plan that goes from generation to generation. Also, um, Abraham, God promised Abraham, the greatest gift that I can give you is I'm going to give you descendants. 
So the family was established at the very beginning as a blessing from God. It's pre-fall. Family is not part of the curse, although sometimes it might feel like that, but family is pre-fall. God sees this and says, it's very good. So God established marriage. God established the family. And point three, parents and grandparents own the spiritual training of their children. Okay, parents and grandparents, we own the spiritual training and development of our kids. You know, the most important confession of faith in Judaism is what's called the Shema. Shema means here, and it's H-E-A-R, not H-E-R-E, here. And it's the first word out of Deuteronomy 6.4. You're very familiar with it. Deuteronomy 6.4 through 9, it says, Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We are to pass on our spiritual heritage to our family. We're supposed to be very deliberate about it. Scripture says you shall teach them diligently. And it says basically do it when you're at home, when you're sitting around, when you're driving in the car. They didn't have cars back here. But when you're on your way, when you're eating, at bedtime, in the morning, incorporate spiritual values into your children because parents own the spiritual training and development of their children. We can't outsource the spiritual training of our children to our private Christian schools or our Sunday schools or any other thing. We are responsible. We need to be intentional and deliberate about training up our kids in the way that they should go. And I'm going to come back to that verse in a little bit. So it's not the job of our children's ministry to be, this is the place where they're going to come and they're going to hear about God once a week and we're going to train them up. No, we want to come alongside you and we should come alongside what you are already reinforcing in them with the way that you're talking about God and you're living it out. Remember that truth is more caught than taught. If you say that you are a follower of Jesus and Jesus is like the most important thing in your life and God is number one, but they never see you crack your, kids never see you crack your Bibles at home, they might wonder about that. So we want our kids to catch us living out our faith, treating people the right way as, as best as we can, pursuing God. We want to teach them, we want to train them up in the way that they should go. So I want to say this, although parents are responsible for the spiritual training of their children, unfortunately, there are, is no guarantee for the outcome, okay? We have a responsibility for training them, but there's no five-step plan to say, if you do these five things, if you put them in Christian school, if you read the Bible to them every day, if you pray every night, that they're just going to like go along their entire lives and not have any speed bumps. That's not true. And people will say, what about Proverbs 22.6? Proverbs 22.6 promises, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Well, I would say that this verse is not a guarantee from God. It's not a do this and this will happen. It's a principle that we need to be raising up the spiritual development of our kids, but it's not a guarantee that they're never going to stray. 
Now, let me give you some examples of this, how I think I can prove this from Scripture. I was hanging out with Dan Martin this week, and we were talking a little bit about, about this verse and you know, some ideas about it. And Dan said, you know, so one example is God is the perfect father, right? Wouldn't you say God's a great perfect father? Um, you have a sinless creation, his son, Adam, uh, trained him up in the way that he, got, he, he should go. Adam never strayed from the God, right? Well, no, Adam rebelled from God. So there's your best case scenario right now, and that, that kind of went astray a little bit. Okay, well, what about Solomon himself? Because Solomon wrote this proverb. He's the one that said, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay, I'm Solomon. My dad is David, a man after God's own heart. So surely we'll see Solomon just, just being a proof text of this. Um, it says in 1 Kings 11, 4 through 8, it was Solomon who introduced idol worship in Israel. It said, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as his father David had done. Here's the guy who penned this proverb and said, hey, if you raise up a child, he's never going to depart from it, but he departed from it. So I want to say this is a principle, not a promise, a guarantee that our children are never going to stray from God. Another quick example, what about Solomon's son? So maybe Solomon went astray, but before he did that, he was a great dad. He's the wisest man that ever lived. Um, I'm sure his kids turned out okay, right? 1 Kings 14, 21 through 24, his son Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. And Judah, under his authority, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So we own the spiritual training development of our children, but unfortunately there's no guarantee that everything's going to run smoothly without any bumps. Like I said, there's no five steps to raising a kid. Everything's going to be perfect. But we do have incredible influence over our children. And I also want to, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. And I want to say, the story's not over until it's over. Okay? If you're out here and you have a prodigal child, keep praying. The story is not over. All of us, everybody has to go through through a season of our life where we really wrestle with our faith. Do I really believe this? Do I really own it? Do I really adopt it? So don't give up on your kids. I'm going to come back and talk, that, talk about that a little bit. But raising up our children, living a godly life, raising up godly children affects not only our generation, but also the generations to follow. Everybody knows about, or most of everybody knows about a guy named Jonathan Edwards, okay? He was a Puritan preacher in the 1700s. He wrote, he did a sermon called Sinners in the Hand of, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God that apparently when he gave this message, 
people were just falling down weeping and everything, which is amazing because apparently it's been told that he just stood up there and read the thing. But people were just falling down, repenting of their sin. Like an amazing preacher. He um, went to Yale at the age of 13. He later on became to be the president of Princeton College. He married a godly uh, woman named Sarah. And talking about the way that they raised their children, said it was said of his wife Sarah that she had an excellent way of governing her children. She knew how to make them regard and obey her cheerfully without loud, angry words, much less heavy blows. If any correction was necessary, she did not administer it in a passion. And when she had an occasion to reprove and rebuke, she would do it in few words without intensity and noise. It was said of Jonathan Edwards that every night when he came home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family and then pray a blessing over each child. Jonathan and his wife, Sarah, passed on a great godly legacy to their 11 children. Okay, so this is, this is an interesting thing coming up here. There was another guy who lived about the same time as Jonathan Edwards, and his name was Max Jukes. Now, he became known when they found out that there were 42 men in the New York prison system who could trace their lineage back to Max Jukes. It was said that he was just not a good guy at all. He was in jail, drunkard and everything. Now, there was a guy named A.E. Winship who 150 years after... Jonathan Edwards passed away. He did a comparison. He did, well, let, let me look at the lineage of Jonathan Edwards versus Max Jukes. And look what they found. That out of Jonathan Edwards' lineages, 50, 150 years after he passed away, there were 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 80 public servants, 60 authors, 60 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, three U.S. senators, and a vice president. That's a godly legacy. From Max Jukes, 310 died as paupers, 150 criminals, seven murderers, 100 plus drunks, 190 prostitutes. As parents, we own the spiritual development of our children, and we do the best I can, and some of our children will never stray from the Lord. Praise God for that. But again, I want to give hope to all of us if we have some children who have put God on the side, who aren't necessarily walking with God, do not give up hope. Continue to pray. You know, I have a list of people that I pray for almost every day. I told you I pray through the structure of the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer every day. And then I go through this list of people, family members and friends that I pray for. On the top of my list every single week or every single day are my children and my grandchildren. They're the first people that I pray for. So I want to encourage you. Don't give up hope. I may not see all the results and all the answers to those prayers in my lifetime, but honestly, I'm okay if I don't see everything answered in my lifetime. I want to see these prayers answered in their lifetime. I'm great with that. So there's hope. Don't give up on God. God hears your prayers. God is involved and God is at work, and even though we may never see it, okay? Point four. Well, we've been talking about being married, about kids, about family. What about being single? Point four, being single is a valid and good option. Although today we're talking about marriage and, and children and family and everything, um, the apostle Paul, who was apparently single, remained single, he said this in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 34. He said, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. 
how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. As a married guy, as a guy with children and grandchildren, I can't just take my usual day off and say, well, I'm teaching this week, so even though the kids are here, I'm going to spend the day working on, on my message. Because in our house, Fridays, I'm called Baba. We have Baba and Cece. Fridays is a day of the week. So there's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Baba Day, Saturday, okay? Baba Day are Fridays. And no matter how much I'm feeling stressed about I have to preach on Sunday, I have a responsibility to hang out with those kids and get on the floor and play with them, even though they wear me out a lot. Um, anyway, so, but if I was single, I could cheat on that. I'm like, well, you know, I can, I can really devote myself to only doing things for the Lord and, and be totally focused on that. Now, it didn't say, now, hear me here. Being with my children, I am doing it for, for the Lord. But the idea is that, I am told to love my wife the way that Christ loves the church. That is a command to me. It's something I have to be intentional about. If I wasn't married, my command would be love the Lord your God with our hearts, our mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I wouldn't be thinking about how can I make sure that I'm building into my marriage and everything. So I love that. I love being married. But being single is a valid, good option. Remaining single gives you great freedom to devote yourself more completely to the Lord and being single is not a lesser option. There are many benefits to being single. So this morning, um, I wanted to give you kind of a biblical framework. And as I said, my gosh, we could be up here forever talking about so many different verses and everything. Because the Bible has a lot to say about families. But I would say also, there's a lot of things that doesn't talk about families. Like, where is the verse where if my baby is crying in the middle of the night, do I get out of bed and take care of the baby? If I'm a mom, do I breastfeed on demand or do I put them on a schedule? That's not in the Bible, okay? Uh, which is better? Okay, public school, private school, or homeschool. Which is better? It's not in the Bible. These are gray areas. These are things that, you know, we have opinions, we have wisdom. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to invite some wisdom to come up to the platform. I mentioned last week that I was going to have Bob and Luke Albee up here um, in addition to some other people. And Bob and Luke Albee, I found out on Thursday, uh, we got our, our dates crossed, so they aren't here today. But I did ask last week Bill and Suzanne Shaw and Jan Dillahay, who's going to speak for she and Dirk, to come up to the platform, and I have some questions about family and parenting and all that stuff. So I'm going to invite them up, and let's give them a big hand as they come up. You guys can grab, as a couple, grab a mic, and Jan, grab a mic over there. Jan, can I share what you shared with me this morning? Sure. About the list of, oh, so, so I sent Jan a text this week and said, hey, Jan, would you, would you be willing to come up and share some of your, some of your wisdom about marriage and, and being a parent and all that stuff? And she immediately came back and said, oh, no, no, you, you said, 
you said, you said, what are the questions? And so I had this long list of questions. So I had some questions that I want to ask. And then we have a community group that meets Sundays after church. They're off for the summer, but it's a community group of parents with young children. And we had them email in questions that they would want answered. So I sent her back a long text that was like this of all these questions. What Jan saw were the first two questions, which were like, tell us about your family and tell us about your kids and grandkids. So she immediately responded, oh, great. Yeah, sure. No, no problem. And then she came in this morning. She's like, oh, no. I noticed there was a little down arrow. And I scrolled down to see all the other questions. And oh, I'm not sure I would have done this. But, but thank you guys for, for, for being here. Um, so I have a few questions that I'm going to ask you guys that come from, from Tim. And, and I prepped them. I, I'm not going to, well, there might be some surprise questions because I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. So that makes, that's what makes Sundays fun here. So um, we'll start with the Shaws. Tell us a little bit just about your family growing up and, you know, one of you guys or, or both of you, however you, you feel led. Just what was it like growing up? Little young Bill. <laughs> well, I was the oldest of four, two brothers and a sister. My father was a complete workaholic. He was a car dealer. He sold cars really seven days a week because at church, most people talked to him about cars. And occasionally when his business was in trouble, I would see him reading the Bible. And a few times in his, I saw him on his knees, but he never said anything to me personally. Hmm. And so I, even though he took us to church every Sunday, barefoot, uh, my mother never went. And so I was always a little confused about that. Mm-hmm. But I never really bonded with any of the stories and they were just stories to me about Jesus or parables. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, I basically knew a lot about, I knew a lot of words, uh, but I really wasn't a Christian. And when I married Suzanne, I was not really a believer, but I fooled her. <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and tell us about how you grew up, because you were a believer growing up, right? You became a believer early on? Oh, Yes. I mean, I didn't know I had a choice, really. (laughs) I mean, it was parochial schools. I was an only child, so, I mean, prayer was routine every meal, but never any extemporaneous prayers. Mm -hmm. Never what's on, to me, what's on your mind, what's on your heart, what do we need to pray for. It was just strict, um... Typical day, of course, dad was gone all day. I was in parochial school. Come home, have dinner, and the very first thing he had my, it was reading, writing, arithmetic, memory work. So he put, put my memory book on top of the refrigerator where I couldn't see it, and I was to recite my verses. Oh, okay. And that was our contact. Hmm. That's, that's all. And then mm-hmm. he read the newspaper and whatever. So it was strict, and it was kind of lonely, mm-hmm. an only child. Okay. And I made sure that it was lively, mm-hmm. and we had hula hoops and walks to the park when sure. we were raising our kids. So mm-hmm. that's the end of mine. Okay. Jen, how about you? Um, I was raised by a single mother. My mother was divorced at 26 with four children, I never saw my dad after the age of five until I was introduced to him 
at a family funeral when I was 20 years old, and I never saw him again after that wow. day. Wow. So um, my maternal grandparents were very involved in our life, and they provided a godly example and structure and love. And they were in our driveway every Sunday morning. I was one of the second of four. And they took us to Sunday school. My mother would often join us later for church. But it was in fourth grade, um, a very attentive Sunday school teacher um, really saw my longing to know the Lord. And um, I was redeemed and became a believer when I was 10 years old. And it was real and it was personal and it was transformative from that young age. Um, I always say in my testimony that the greatest thing that ever happened to me was Jesus redeemed me. And the second greatest thing that ever happened to me was he did it when I was young. Mm. And I'm just very, very grateful that I was able to avoid a lot of um, poor choices and pitfalls that I saw in my siblings. And I give all the credit to God for mm. intervening in my life at such a young age and appreciation for grandparents <laughs> um, who, who were part of that. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's awesome. Amen. Okay, how many years you guys been married? 55. 55 years. Okay. Uh, just, just a show of hand. How many of you guys are married? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, put your hands down. How many of you guys are happily married? No, just, just, <laughs> told you I don't know what I'm going to say. All right, 55 years. How do you do that? How do you stay married for 55 years? Well, not being a believer, she left me after about seven years. because I was a complete workaholic. And she never said anything to me that she wasn't happy. Uh, we had two children by then. So the result of her leaving was I went to a lot of counseling with her and became a believer slow but surely because I was a chemist. And I was, it was hard for me to become a believer at that age because... I lived in a physical world of atoms and molecules, mm -hmm. and that's the way I thought. And, uh, but God managed to get through to me by answering some outrageous prayers that proved to me he existed. And then he continued to answer outrageous prayers. And uh, so the first thing I had to do was get rid of a very bad temper. And the, uh, that was a long process. My daughter, however, noticed that I was changing in the age of eight when we were doing a little Bible study together. She said, well, what happened to you, Daddy? And I told her that I had now had Jesus in my heart, and she said, I want Jesus in my mm. heart. Mm. Now, advance forward, and she's 25, and she's giving her testimony to a group of people at a conference and she goes back and recounts that that's when she became a believer. And we just started crying. Mm. What, a, what a difference that made. Mm -hmm. So, Suzanne, he wasn't a believer for the first seven years. Of uh, your... He's a really good salesman. He can convince you of anything. Yeah, it's not how so, well you ski, it's how good so you look at the lodge, I, I, right? He so. said I swallowed it. You know, I just... <laughs> Uh, he acted the part. Okay, so I'd say you, the question was, how did we how stay do you, how do you, together? How do you say married? Yeah, for that well, long. Well, he... <laughs> he really changed. Um, 
I was in a Bible study with some women. We prayed, the three of us were thinking about, really had it with our husbands, how, how could we get out of this marriage? And the leader said, did you ever think about praying for your husbands? And we thought, oh, yeah. So for about a year, we get together and we prayed for our husband. We had a potluck dinner where a man gave his testimony. The first year, um, Bill heard the testimony, said, it's the biggest bunch of blank ever heard. So the second year, so we keep praying another year, getting together with a sweet group of Christian ladies. Another potluck dinner, and a man gave his testimony, and Bill said, well, I don't believe all that stuff about the Bible or the memory verses, but he said, number one, I can see that the man is happy. I can see, number two, he has a good relationship with his wife, mm-hmm. and he didn't have either one. Mm. So when that man asked him to have lunch, he did that. And I guess the crucial part to me was after I had left, and by the way, it wasn't, it wasn't very long because I was so mad that I forgot my nighty, my toothbrush, my credit <laughs> card. I mean, I had to go home. So when I got there, um, no, he figured out where I was, and he said, I really would like for you to come home. And so I did for those reasons that I forgot everything I needed to be self-sufficient. <laughs> and he said some words that help us to start repair. He said, I was wrong. Mm. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? So I call myself a Christian Yes, I had to forgive him. And I had to learn to say those words, too, Mm. because I was a non-communicator. And he is a person that, I don't play the, why don't you read my mind game? Mm -hmm. So I had to go to counseling and learn how to communicate. I didn't know about that, um, the way I was raised. So that was the start. That was the beginning. And then he just, I mean, the change Mm. when he accepted Christ was unbelievable. He started praying with the kids. Mm -hmm. I was always in charge of that. He's in, I'm not really good at supporting him. (laughs) He said, I'm going to teach the kids Bible studies tonight. He grabbed them both by the hand, and I said, but you don't know any Bible stories. (laughs) He said, well, I'm going to learn them with the kids. Let's so, start in Revelation. We'll just start reading that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that was the start of it. But mm-hmm. we did have a lot of counseling in addition to, mm-hmm. but that's, that was so important. Yeah. I had to say that too. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then he made some rules, like we're going to start praying together. Hmm. He said, does God have eyes? Yes. Well, then we're going to pray on our knees. Does God have ears? Well, yeah said. So he said, we're going to pray out loud. So we've been doing that for the past 40-something years since he became a Christian. Wow, that's awesome. So that's how we stayed together. Yeah, good. You learn to forgive and you pray together. Mm-hmm. Great story. Thank you. Every night. By the way, we have a picture of the extended family up here, I think. 
Yeah, how many, how many kids are, or how many grandkids do you have? We have grandkids. 10 grandkids, eight great grandkids, and we had two daughters who had 10 children. <laughs> wow, talk about be fruitful and multiply here. So. And so there are 29 up there, and that's marriages and, and fiancés, and that, that's who's, who's all up there. So this is a small city up here is basically what, <laughs> that's awesome. And we have uh, Jan and Dirk and their kids and grandkids up here, I think, right? So how many, how many uh, kids and grandkids do you have in your mic? Oh, two children and two grandchildren. Yeah, that's awesome. So let me ask you, Jan, also, um, how many years have you guys been married, you and Dirk? Almost 43. Okay. Praise God for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you stay married for 43 years? Um, because it's not an option to not be married. <laughs> um, because of the childhood that I did have and being raised in the single home that I was raised mm. in, I, I came out of a childhood. And if I was going to be married, I was um, going to be married to a committed Christian that loved Christ and loved his church. And our, our marriage was not I, I didn't want that for my future otherwise. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's no guarantee because there are good pretenders out there. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, so we went into marriage that, you know, that, that we would be married. And one of the questions that you sent me was somebody, I guess, from the family group had asked about seasons of marriage. And for, for us, there's always only two seasons that we're either just surviving being married or we're thriving in being married. And so um, if we're in that survival mode, then we need to be doing something to, to kick it up to the thriving mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just the way that we have kind of looked at it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I'm gonna, we have a lot of questions here, so I'm going to move really quickly. We're not going to be able to cover everything, but also... If you are part of the um, Families with Young Kids community group that meets after the service, we've already talked to the Stocktons about we're going to do more of these kind of things. Um, so if, you're, if you are a part of that, know that there's more information coming. If you're not, you should be a part of that because there's a lot of wisdom up here. So raising kids, the best thing you did, parenting, and something that you regret. Well, the best thing was as I was becoming a believer, you have to understand I had, I was, it's not easy for somebody who'd been making his own decisions. Well, the Holy Spirit told me that I couldn't say no to, to Suzanne and the girls. And so I, I really didn't like that, but I had been given a command not to say no. So Suzanne comes up to me and she asked me if Lisa can have a horse. I'm starting a business, and so she wants to know if Lisa can have a horse. So I'm going to God, and we're talking, and I'm always the sales type. So uh, I came back, and the God had, and I had talked about this, and I said to Suzanne, I said, well, I've got two very large customers I cannot get. One was in North Carolina, one in South Carolina. And I said, if God will get me those two customers, then Lisa can have her horse. So Lisa and I go to praying, and Lisa knows the name of the customers, the name of the two men that are keeping me out of those businesses. And for a year, we prayed on our knees by the bed, 
And I got both those customers, and Lisa got her horse. <laughs> so awesome. who gave Lisa the horse? God did. I didn't. And that was probably the best thing. Yeah, it's awesome. The worst thing <laughs> I ever did was I, let, I broke a relationship by trying to control. You cannot control a strong-willed child. And I broke the relationship with her so that it was so bad that she began, she didn't have the freedom to choose what she wanted to do. She would do what she knew, the opposite of what she knew I wanted her to do. And that's really a bad situation, which led to a bad of consequences for her mm -hmm. and for us. But in the end, the proverb was true. She came back, mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. have a great relationship today. Yeah. Awesome. Jan, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Um, this was an immediate thought and answer, and Dirk had the same one. The best thing we ever did with our children was um, travel, just the four of us, and go. And because Dirk was diagnosed with his MS early, we knew we had very limited years to be active, and our children were just um, were young also when he got that diagnosis. Um, three and five, real young. So we forgot, we, we just, we didn't care about accumulating things. Mm -hmm. I had a house with an empty dining room for years and a living room without a sofa or anything else in it. But we went to, and uh, helicopter down into the Grand Canyon and rafted on the Colorado River. We snowmobiled in Yellowstone. We well watched in Boston and went to Washington, D.C. And, um, and we went and camped at Vogel. It doesn't have to be big trips. But our children and both of us feel like those were the best things mm -hmm. that brought our family together and gave us real memories. Um, my children have memories of their dad healthy and uh, participating in their life. And the thing we would do different is we would do less activities with our children. Mm. Um, I don't know why we thought a six-year-old could not miss a soccer game in order to see their grandparents. Mm -hmm. um, but we bought into that. You know, if you're a good team player, you go. But... Um, it, we would do less activities, and we would foster closer relationships with grandparents and cousins and extended family. Mm -hmm. We had to do something mm -hmm. different again. Yeah, grandparenting is... Yeah, as grandparents, I have a whole different viewpoint on Grandparenting that. is a totally <laughs> different thing. We told our, we told our daughter, um, so we have two grandkids. We have an almost five-year-old, almost two-year-old. And we told our daughter, we looked at her and said, you know we love your children more than you, don't you? And you're like, I know, but that's okay. <laughs> but it's, it's not more, it's just, it's just different. You know, when, when Violet asks for something, I'm like, of course you can have that popsicle or you can, have, you can do whatever you want because we get you all fired up on sugar, we're going to send you home anyway. So it's great. It's great. But anyway, so um, I want to ask about, this is just some of the questions that are coming from the group here, just real quickly. Um, Self-care. So parenting is, you're busy. You're, there's a lot of activities going on. Uh, I know being a grandparent, I'm exhausted at the end of the day. I can't believe we raise kids because I don't know where, where we got that energy. But how do you take care of yourself and how do you invest in your marriage and all that when you're so busy raising kids, you know, when you have a house full of kids or a bunch of kids? Suzanne, why don't you talk about that? Say that once more. How do you take care of yourself? How do you yourself? take care of yourself and nurture your marriage and still have time to do all the things that you want to do to take care of your kids? Well, you have to be real intentional. I mean, it's, I guess it's too obvious, but you have to set 
date nights mm -hmm. e either. What's that? He's giving you the answer right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Set date nights. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean it's a business meeting. Right. It's no fair to go to Cafe Intermezzo and have coffee and dessert. And, and look talk at your calendar your and talk calendar, about it. Calendar, okay. your budget. This Wait, that doesn't count? No, that doesn't count. Uh -oh. <laughs> you, you, you can have a planning night, but you got to have a date night. Well, you do something fun. Just think about when you were dating. What did you do that really attracted you to each other? And it was fun. Um, so, you what? Oh, yeah, we still do that. Friday night is ballroom dance night. That's awesome. We meet friends at Atlanta Dance, and we dance. We just actually did that when we first got together. And I can't think of what else, how you take care of yourself. I mean, when the kids were little, I made fun things to do that I wanted to do, too. Mm -hmm. Like, we lived close enough to Murphy Candler Park. We would walk to the park. We would run by the lake, you know, action mm -hmm. thing. So that was taking care of myself and yeah. doing something fun with them. I mean, I'm a physical fitness nut, so mm -hmm. I got them doing physical things. Mm -hmm. so. That's awesome. Jan, how about you? How do you, yeah. how do you take care of yourself, take care of your marriage while you're raising children and grandchildren? Yeah. Um, in the, in the question that I had read from the Young Families group that uh, it seems a lot of young mothers especially feel guilty if they take that time. And um, I, I would want to say to them that if you don't want to raise selfish children, don't make it all about them. <laughs> and let them see that you value friends and that you spend time with friends. You value being, say, in a ladies' Bible study or you value doing exercise. If those are things that... Uh, you want for them, then they need to see you do that. And it's, it's no reason to feel guilty mm -hmm. um, because you want them to see that the whole world doesn't revolve around mm -hmm. them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay, one more. This is a, this is a tough one. Spanking. Discipline your, your kids. You know, when I grew up, I got whooped all the time. We had parents had a yardstick on top of the refrigerator, and I never thought that them spanking me, I didn't deserve it. Every time I got a spanking, oh, I deserve that. I knew it, I knew it was coming. Um, with our children, we, we did spank. Um, we didn't have to with one because we spanked one one time. That was it. The other literally used to put on multiple pairs of underwear because we would never, <laughs> we would never spank in anger. But we would say, you go upstairs and, and, and you calm down. You never want to discipline in anger. This person, I'm not going to say who it is, but Lauren used to go up. <laughs> we found out later, Cindy was like, you know, I whack her. She's never, she never cried. That's because she couldn't feel anything. She literally went on and put on layers and everything. Now, grandkids, I spank my grandkids? No way. <laughs> it's like we, we discipline them, but I just don't really feel, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel the same thing. Maybe... I, the responsibility, I want to discipline them or whatever. But what about you guys? Now, granted, a bunch of boomers up here, so it's a different generation. Things come and go. Just want to get your perspective on disciplining children. Well, just so you know, I was beat with a belt. But I couldn't put on lots of clothes because Dad made me strip to my underwear. 
And you can see where I was, but you know, it didn't We don't stop want to me. see that, so we don't want to. <laughs> yeah. let's, just, let's just move on, take that picture out of your mind. <laughs> it didn't stop me. I was willing, I, the things I did, I wanted to do bad enough that I knew what I could take it. So it didn't stop me mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. But with the grandkids, the great-grandkids especially, the, uh, I can remember one time we would pick up the kids for the weekend, and we did make a point to spend a lot of time with the grandkids. So we'd pick them up, they'd spend the night. So one time they get in the car, the back seat of my truck, and Nicholas, who's maybe eight, goes and just spits all over his sister in her face. And I saw it in the rearview mirror. So I, I said, Nicholas, we don't do that in Papa Shaw's car. And he looks at me and he goes, and then all of them are looking at me, like, what's he going to do next? And I told, I told Art, the father, I said, Art, don't leave, don't leave. Because we were at a Wendy's, we were just swapping kids. And so I took Nicholas out of the car, and I said, Nicholas, I am so sorry. We were going to shoot BB guns. We were going to shoot bows and arrows. We were going to play in the woods. And now you can't do any of that. The next time you come, maybe you'll listen to Papa. Mm -hmm. And so Nicholas went home when it's dead. Mm -hmm. And I never had a problem with Nicholas mm -hmm. again. That's great. To this day. <laughs> and he's married now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's awesome. What about you guys, Jan? Um, I look at discipline as um, part of discipling. Mm -hmm. And that discipline should be in the same vein of how you're discipling your children. And so if you're discipling them to, to tell the truth, then you discipline when they don't tell the truth. And so um, because I would sometimes discipline because they had embarrassed me in front of my other mother friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I, I think you have to come to why you're disciplining and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and hopefully it's because you are discipling them. We did spank our children. Our grandchildren have never been spanked. And I will say that they're probably better behaved than my children are, but maybe that's my grandmother talking. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the main thing is that you are, you have a reason for your discipline and how you discipline and the goal that you hope that that achieves. Um, as far as grandparenting, we feel like our role is to um, never compete with the parents, but to be a source of enrichment mm -hmm. and reinforcement to mm -hmm. what the parents are doing. And um, so, like I said, there were a couple of times I wanted to spank my grandkids, especially when they were little and they were kicking you like crazy when you're trying to buckle them in a car seat. I thought a little pop might help, but I, <laughs> but Cindy, I didn't. Cindy, Cindy thinks a little pop to me helps me every now and then too. I, I did it because that would not be reinforcing what their parents do. Yeah. But, uh, but, but the, the main thing is discipline should be along with your discipling yeah, yeah, and, that's great. Uh, and for the reason for that. That's great. Well, listen, we're out of time. We have a lot more things we'd love to ask you, but maybe we'll schedule something else, a special event back there, bring in some more of our parents and talk about this. But this has been super, super rich. Um, so thank you guys so much for being up here. And let's give them a big, big hand. That was really, really good. Thanks, guys. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Every week, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as kind of like the focal point of our service. There's um, something special that happens as we remember the crucifixion. The, the, the bread represents the body of Christ that's broken for us. The wine or the grape juice represents his blood that was spilt for us. So we're going to do that today. Um, 
we're going to continue after that. We might do it a little bit differently. I'm going to, I'm going to set us up here. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite everybody to go to one of the stations in one of the corners here. You can pick up the elements. There's gluten-free up here. Communion at DCC is open to anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, who has put their trust in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, you can do that today and come and join us in taking communion. A lot of times we get the elements, we go back to our seats, and we take it together. Because we're running short on time, what we're going to do today is I'm going to pray. You guys can get up as you feel led, take communion, and then as you're doing that, you can go back to your, or you can take the elements back to your seat, take it as you feel led at your seat. But as that's going on, we're going to start a season of worship. We're going to do two more songs, um, one focusing on just vertical worship of Jesus, and then we're going to close with a final song that is called I Speak Jesus. And it's really all about, you know, taking Jesus to our families, to our workplaces and everything. So let's use that today as our closing prayer. So I'm going to pray for us. You guys grab communion and then go back to your seat, take it as you feel led. And then we're going to just jump right into a time of worship. We're doing two more songs and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are the good, good Father. Thank you that although we turn from you, you set us up in a perfect situation in paradise. You said there's one thing not to do. We did that one thing, and we are bearing the consequences. So sin is passed on generation to generation, Lord. And we have all fallen short of your standard and your glory. But you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to take our punishment on himself so that by simply trusting in that, accepting that free gift, we can exchange our sinfulness with his righteousness. Scripture says that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we thank you, God, that we are lost and hopeless without you. We thank you for families, thank you for children, thank you for relationships, thank you that we have been adopted as sons and daughters back into your family through the blood of Jesus. And we remember during this time that the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body that's broken for you. As often as you eat, remember me. And you took the cup and you said, this represents the blood of the new covenant, that we can have peace and reconciliation with God through your blood. So we remember you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time this morning, and I pray that you would speak to us as we partake of the Lord's Supper and as we continue worshiping you in song. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you feel led, just go ahead and take communion.